next Sunday in the last of the three sermons on this text here in 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to focus on verses 9 and 10 in particular, uh, two very important verses, and um, I'll explain next Sunday why um, this these three sermons have two titles and why I couldn't decide uh, between the two of them. But let's ask the Lord for uh, his blessing, shall we? Well, Lord, we are so thankful for that great promise made to our father Abraham and our mother in the Lord, Sarah, that indeed you would be our God and you would be their God and all of their offspring uh, who know you and love you that you would be their God as well. Lord, we pray that even by the power of the Holy Spirit now you would come and you would teach us that you would open our eyes. We need you to do that. How thankful we are, O Lord, for that fatherly love because we know that you want to bless us and teach us even as we have come together this morning on Resurrection Day. And we will give you thanks and praise now and forever, O Lord. Amen. Richard has already alluded to the situation in Europe, the ongoing fervor of the political battles for the American presidency here, the terrorist attack on a gay nightclub in Orlando two weeks ago for the cause of ISIS. All of this throws into very sharp relief the important question, how are Christians who are committed to truth and love, who are committed to the unity of the body of Christ supposed to relate to the unbelieving world around them. Now there's much in 1 Corinthians that touches on this theme and particularly in chapters 5 through 7. The first thing the church has for the world is the message of who God is and the wonderful thing he has done through Jesus Christ. That message shared, of course, by God's people, but that message made credible and winsome by the way his people actually live from Monday through Saturday. We have a wonderful purpose statement, I think, and those who are in the um, apprenticeship for the office of uh, elder and the ministry of deaconess, we talked about this yesterday. Back in the 90s, we pulled together the teaching of Scripture, and we said that our purpose as Old Orchard Church is to be a community of Jesus Christ's followers who in our time and place and by the power of the Holy Spirit enjoy God and bring pleasure to Him. That's from the Catechism. And, we added, for the sake of the world, live as a demonstration of of who God is. We are coming back to 1 Corinthians 5 today and to the exasperation the Apostle Paul feels over the fact that at least a very large number of the Christians in the church in Corinth seem to be pleased with themselves for allowing one of their members to be romantically and sexually involved with his stepmother. So Paul speaks into that in chapter 5, but he speaks into something else. Apparently, from an earlier letter that we no longer have from Paul to the Corinthians, 
the congregation, many at least, had misunderstood Paul to be teaching that if you are a Christian, you shouldn't have any close associations with unbelievers who are caught up in the worship of false gods or who are acting immorally with sex, money, words, or alcohol. In chapter 5 here, Paul clarifies for them, no, you misunderstood me, that isn't what I meant. That's what we will focus on next Sunday in verses 9 and 10. But before we go back to 5, listen again to what Paul insists on in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, because it's the backdrop of 5. This text that I've put in front of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 16, is one of the most radical, inspiring to Christians, but infuriating to non-Christians, dangerous and exhilarating passages in the whole of the New Testament. If you want a passage from God's Word to lift you out of the smallness of your life, your theology, your politics, your philosophy, your lifestyle, your priorities, and your prejudices, and up into the stratosphere of the kingdom of God. This is the text for you. If you want a passage to ponder, to give you insight into the largeness of God's purposes for the world, then try camping out with these verses for a month or so. Here is something, friends, to expand your mind and to light your heart on fire. In a tumult of enthusiasm for the church of Jesus Christ and the proper way that God expects it to influence the world. We pick up here at verse 12 of chapter 2. You have it in your insert. Now we, that is we Christians, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. That's one of the most radical statements in the New Testament. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And now Paul is going to put all genuine believers on the side with God over against the natural mind that doesn't understand the things of the Lord. And so after he cites Isaiah 40 here, he says, but we, we Christians... We have this mind of the Lord, the mind of Christ. Now, why are those that Paul calls here merely natural, why are they not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God? When we come to 1 Corinthians 5 with Paul's call to practice church discipline, we are certainly at a place where the person without the Spirit of God at least usually is not 
going to understand what we're doing and why, especially in the 21st century. Someone said it well, if you have not received the Holy Spirit, then your view of things is from the bottom up, twisted and distorted. But Paul is insisting that Christians, by virtue of having the Spirit of the living God, have had their eyes opened to see things from the top down. And that includes what is right and good for human flourishing when it comes to sexual ethics. So here's what things look like from God's side, that is from the top down, when it comes to one specific thing regarding the sex ethic that God has given to the whole world, that is when it comes to incest, whether it is biological or whether it is familial, as it so it seems to be in this case, and that is that it, this man has taken up not with his biological mother, but with his stepmother. It's what most people think. And so Paul speaks into the situation then in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. Now Paul's writing here about a very particular situation in this chapter. And this is our task, I think, in all of these situations that we are going to encounter in 1 Corinthians, and there are more of them to come. The task is this. We are to find God's universal principles at work in the particulars of Paul's apostolic counsel. We are to look for God's universal principles at work in the particulars of Paul's apostolic council. So where do we start? Well, we'll start with the biggest picture here, which I think is this. It is the task of the church to find those times in her life when to love is not to tolerate and include and be silent, but rather to confront, to challenge, and even to exclude. Why? Because she, as the church, has been constituted holy by the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death. And because she is counted holy, now she is called to live holy. Now, this finding of these times and situations where this is how love is to act, you don't just find that by concentrating in a Where's Waldo book. You find this, and it has to be done collectively by discerning these situations in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we break down this large principle, we find some constituent parts, we might say, that are smaller principles. And the first one is this. I think we learn this from this text, and that is that there is anger turned to grief. Hyphenate those three words. Anger turned to grief in church discipline. I think you can sense that the Apostle Paul is angry as he writes this. 
And I think it's because the Corinthians were not. They seem to be proud of what they're tolerating in the life of their church. We've already read it. A man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Well, doesn't that mean that Paul is counseling grief, not anger? I don't think so. Let's unpack that a bit. Those who have been made holy and who love God, they've come out from under the wrath of God by the power of atoning sacrifice. Yes, under the old covenant, it was the blood of animals provisionally. But those who love God, they always stand in solidarity with God whose holiness constrains him to abhor sin. This is why in Acts 17, what's the first thing that Luke reports about the Apostle Paul when he gets to Athens? That when he comes into the city and he sees all of the idols, his spirit is provoked. He doesn't just say, well, that's not me, that's them. His spirit is provoked. Well, after it says that, what's the next thing that you read? So he railed against them in their pagan idolatry. That's not what you find. What you find, rather, is this. So he reasoned with them in the marketplace every day. Paul allowed his anger at the idolatry to change, to morph into compassion and a sharpening of his wits to engage those Greeks in conversation about matters of life and truth. I think that's the biblical model. Sin is supposed to disturb us. It is supposed to make us angry. But then we are to move from the anger to something more constructive. And in this case, Paul says, when one of your brothers puts himself in spiritual danger, you should have been grieving over that. It's a good word for all situations where it is so easy to be more angry at a brother or sister's sin than at our own. Well, the second principle is that there is what we might call community and formality in discipline, at least in the discipline of excommunication. Look at verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, then you are to act. This discipline was to take place in a public meeting of the church. And formal pronouncements were to be made. Some years ago I was asked to be involved in a situation here in Presbytery, a discipline-related situation that involved one of the pastors in the church and his family. And we had a public meeting at my recommendation. But I said to these brothers, don't do this because the pastor's family is involved unless you are willing to do this from now on. 
I heard from several people that night after that meeting and from people later that it was refreshing and it was helpful, but it proved to be too much. They stopped doing it. A couple people left over it because this whole prospect of speaking publicly about one another, they just didn't think it was helpful. But this is what Paul commends to the Christians in Corinth. The third principle, there is exclusion, at least in the discipline of excommunication. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. It's not exactly clear what that means precisely. I don't think Paul was counseling to go pick the guy up if he refused to leave, but it's clearly here the man no longer has a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. For though absent in body, verse 3, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Metaphorically, this man who is in this relationship is the leaven, leavening the whole lump. The leaven here, the fermented part of the bread, is infecting the whole lump if it's allowed to stay. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are. Because, in fact, Christ has made you holy. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler. There's someone who acts immorally with their words, a drunkard, someone who does it with alcohol, or a swindler, someone who does it with money, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, and now Paul comes back to the situation at hand, purge the evil person from among you. So this, is, this man is to be excommunicated from the fellowship of the church, but Paul says here, don't even eat with such a one. Now what does Paul mean? Well, think about the meal settings in the early church. In the Bible, next to sexual closeness, eating together is the most intimate form of human connection. There's three settings for meals as we find it in the New Testament. The Lord's Supper, which is the most special, if you will, the most serious meal, not just because we are to be pondering Jesus' pain, but because it in fact is a celebration and remembering of his pain on our behalf. And it is a kind of token meal. Then there were the love feasts. We're going to find these in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they were connected with the Lord's Supper, but they were a full meal. And then, of course, there are meals in the individual homes of believers. Now, actually, these three meals we still pretty much work with 
in the modern church, except that fellowship meals most of the time now get separated from the Lord's Supper in a lot of places, although in the early years here, here at Old Orchard, after we had the Lord's Supper, we would break and we would eat together uh, in the back, very much like what was going on in the church here in Corinth. Well, what is Paul's counsel regarding eating? Don't even eat with a person who is doing this. At the very least, this man was to be excluded from the Lord's Supper. That is the meal which most dramatically identifies those who are the people of God, those who are taking on themselves, as it were, the yoke of discipleship. Surely, Paul is telling the Christians in Corinth this, me, this person is to be excluded from the Lord's Supper. It's possible that he is to be excluded from the fellowship meal as well. It's also possible that Paul is saying across the board, do not even eat with this person, not as a vindictive thing, but because what it means to eat together is to be close. This is to be a sign and a symbol to him, that he has endangered his soul, and he needs to reckon with that. Well, fourthly, there is grace in all discipline, friends, even in excommunication. Look at verse 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 4, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to act. And what are you to do? You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does Paul have in view? That this man might come to his senses that he might come back to the faith and see what he is doing. So often, and perhaps the people in this congregation I mentioned a bit ago had reason to be nervous and skittish about public meetings because so often in the life of the church, grace has not been at the very center of its discipline. I'm going to read you just a couple of sentences from Jerem Barr's section on church discipline. This was in a Presbytery report in 1994, a report on homosexual partnerships, and Jerem wrote this, We recognize that God's word must be given time to bear its fruit in the hearts of those whom he calls through the gospel. Yet we believe that Scripture calls us to the practice of discipline as a means of grace to bring about the growth in obedience to God, which is the calling of every Christian. Discipline is, of course, chastisement and is therefore painful. Yet, by the power of the Spirit, discipline too is God's ordained instrument to produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness in believers who fall into grievous sin. It's a wonderful emphasis on grace as the thing that is to be our motivation. But what does Paul mean here in verse 5 when he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved 
in the day of the Lord. You might think that this sounds a little bit cultish. What does this mean to deliver this man to Satan? Well, remember that the church has been made holy. Very interesting that the Apostle Paul, in verse 2 of the whole letter, right at the beginning, starts out with that, saying that you have been made holy. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who have been made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be the holy ones. In a certain sense, the scriptures teach us that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, of Satan, the prince of darkness. It seems that what Paul is contrasting here is what it means to live as part of the holy people of God under the umbrella of the grace and the mercy and the patience of God. And by excommunicating this man, by putting him out of the fellowship, he is now being put out into the world, even to the point where his life falls apart for the destruction of the flesh. It's not so he is killed, but so that his life falls apart as he is removed from the umbrella of grace, not to ruin him, but to wake him up. Now, what does that mean? Friends, this means that if God holds out grace to those in his church that we are supposed to discipline, then we are arrogant. If we do not show humility and respect for those we discipline, even when it has to be done with sharp words and decisive surgical action. I want to close with a story. It's really a very wonderful story. It's a parable. And this parable was written back in the 1930s, and so the author can't be accused of just kowtowing to the modern preoccupation of affirming everyone and being soft always in everything that we say and do. But it's a lovely little parable. It's in Elizabethan English, and that's part of the charm of these parables. But it goes like this. Saphid is a wise old preacher man. Keturah is his wife. And so Saphid writes, There came unto me a man who desired my advice. And he did not come any too soon. And I said unto him, Thou hast acted unwisely. And he said, I am afraid that what thou sayest is true. Tell me wherein my fault lieth. And I told him the best I could. And he said, I verily believe thou art right. I will amend my ways. Then we talked of other things, and he spoke as one who was free from care. And when he left, he seemed happy. And I got to thinking it over, and I said, I did not rub it in enough. I should have been more severe. And I sat down and wrote him an epistle, and said unto him, Forget not that thou hast much whereof to repent. And I told him again two or three things. Now I had other letters to mail, and it chanced when I picked them up that I overlooked this one. 
And I returned to my home and saw it still unmailed. And I said, let me look again at that letter. And when I read it over, I said, how will that sound when he readeth it? And perhaps handeth handeth it across the table to his wife. And I said, verily, it was of the Lord and not of mine own wisdom that this letter had not gone out in the mail. And I tore it across and then again across and threw it into the fire. And I said, I have rarely repented of a harsh word I left unspoken or a harsh letter that I did not mail. And when I next met that man, he said unto me, I thank thee for what thou didst say, and I thank thee yet more for what thou mightest have said. That would have been true, but which I was in the mood to resent. And because thou wast kind to me, and didst hurt me no more than was necessary. Behold, I have resolved to be a better man. And I went unto my home, and I said, O my God, I have much to thank thee for, but just now I thank thee for the times when I stopped just short of making a fool of myself. For surely it is no credit to me that having done that man a good turn, I did not ruin it all by overdoing it. I have rarely repented of a harsh word I left unspoken. I don't know if that resonates with you, but it certainly does with me. And then we say, oh, but that's just so 21st century, isn't it? Everything soft, everything gentle, everything said with sensitivity and affirmation. Take all the sharp words, all the sharp edges off your words, otherwise you are going to alienate people. Well, William Barton wrote this parable in 1937. And not overdoing it with sharpness, that is just a biblical teaching. When it comes to the discipline of the church, that's supposed to be the rule. You hurt me no more than was necessary. Friends, we are to find, to discern those times in our life as a church when to love is not to tolerate and include and be silent, but rather is a time to confront, to challenge, and even to exclude, because Christ, by his finished work, has made us holy. And now we are called to live holy. We can only discern those times by a fresh giving of ourselves to the Holy Spirit and the power that he has to illumine for us the mind of Christ, which gloriously has actually been given to us. Amen. Amen. 